If you have a copy of the text, I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And last Sunday, we began our study that focuses on the healing and the resurrecting power of Christ, which also serves as a very fitting title. This passage we have learned is one of three consecutive passages, this being the final one, that focuses on the divine power of Jesus as he displays it in three unique ways. We saw at the end of chapter 4, we, we, we saw his sovereignty through a storm that tested the faith of the disciples as they witnessed Christ's power over the realm of nature. And they were literally awestruck as they saw Jesus silence a storm. Next, the disciples witnessed our Lord's power to save as he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and encountered a demon-possessed man in the land of the Gerasenes. And the disciples had seen Jesus cast out demons before, or at least cast out a demon before, but this situation was unique because this man was possessed by a legion. He was literally possessed by thousands of demons, and nobody was able to subdue him nor the spiritual darkness and power that not only tormented him, but tormented everybody that was living in that region. A demonic force that was so powerful that when it was cast out, entered into 2,000 swine that ended up running off a cliff. It terrified everyone. And the, the only person that seemed to not be terrified by what Jesus had done was the, the man who, by God's grace, was saved and redeemed. And this encounter grew the disciples' faith, and it helped them understand that no level of spiritual darkness, even when forces are combined, stand a chance against the Lord's power. And it was a lesson for them back then, and it's a lesson for you and I that should grow our faith and encourage us that no matter what realm of spiritual darkness, spiritual condition that we see somebody in, that the Lord has the power to save them. Amen? He does. And now we're completing the trifecta, so to speak. Christ's power performs two more miracles, displaying his power over illness and death. And in Mark 5, 21 through 43, Jesus encounters two people who are facing real-life intense battles that cause them to be overwhelmingly desperate as thoughts of despair and death are looming. And by God's grace, both people are led to pursue Christ. And through all these accounts, we see the sufficiency of Christ's power to handle any and all circumstances of life. They point us to his deity, they, they point us to his sovereignty and to his power. And it is amazing to see how, as we witness these truths, that our faith allows them to apply these truths to our personal spiritual walks. And aside from Jesus demonstrating his power, last week's account shows our Lord's heart of sympathy and compassion his desire to forgive and restore. And we see the Lord call the woman out and initiate a relationship with her. He calls her to confession and repentance. And he publicly restores, forgives, and redeems her life. And this literally and powerfully points us to the gospel. 
This also helps us understand two very fundamental theological questions that I introduced last week. How big is your God? How strong is your God? And how you answer these two questions impacts everything in your life. Everything. How big is your God? How strong is your God? These are the biblical truths that we must trust and lean upon to, to, to confront and, and tackle the circumstances of life that are going to come our way as we apply our faith to our walks. We are literally answering those questions, are we not? How big God is, how strong God is. And when your God is small, your problems are big. When your God is small, the circumstances of life and ministry, we said, they can be absolutely overwhelming. And the key is that you and I do not allow the circumstances of our lives to eclipse our view of God, to eclipse the magnitude and the power of who he is, to eclipse the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that resides within each of our hearts to overcome the circumstances that we might face in his strength. We need to nail down these truths so that no matter what the world may send our way, that we trust God faithfully to lead us and to guide us. And I have a, a biblical responsibility. I have a mandate to stand up here Sunday after Sunday and to proclaim the truths of the gospel and to proclaim the truths of the full counsel of God's word so that we, we nail these down into our hearts and that we're prepared to give him glory through the testimony, through the trials, through the circumstances, whatever it is that we might face. And what are we doing? The whole time that we're doing that, we have a ministry pillar right up here, that we're progressing in evangelism and discipleship. We're progressing as the gospel is preached. We're progressing as a disciple, as every truth from scripture is brought to bear in our life and helps us be prepared for whatever might come our way. And last week I shared this, and it bears repeating, that just because our faith is clearly defined, all right, it's, it's, it's clearly defined, it doesn't mean that our, our faith is fully grown, that our faith grows. And with that said, let us continue our study of the one who has absolute authority and power to control all things and begin our time by reading Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 to see how it can help us to continue to grow in our faith. All one unit in the Greek, massive text, powerful passage. Let's read it together starting in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again, in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. 
A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came into the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Well, your sermon proposition has made it clear that we see two miracles that are allowing us to see the healing and resurrecting power of Christ through the gospel so that your faith is grown to trust in him more deeply. That is the driving purpose of our passage. And last week we studied our first point and the first miracle that helped us to grow in our faith. We confirmed that we should trust completely in Christ because of his healing power that points us to the gospel. Our account began with a man named Jairus who came to Jesus pleading for his dying daughter's life. We talked about the level of desperation that any parent would feel that if their child were dying, right, they would want to do everything within their power. Jairus' love for his 12-year-old daughter led him to the feet of the Savior, literally begging Jesus to spare her life. And so, our merciful and compassionate Savior, he immediately leaves, a word used often in, in the Gospel of Mark, he takes off right away with Jairus to go minister to her. But while on their way, the desperate reach of a woman stops them, interrupts them. A woman who was, was gravely ill. And it provides a great teaching moment for Jairus and the watching disciples. And what purpose would this, this encounter serve? 
How would it impact Jairus? And what bearing does it have on our understanding of the second half of the passage? And remember, I talked about this, that Mark is employing what's called the sandwich technique, right? And the substance of the passage is in this middle portion that we got a chance to study last week. And it reveals the healing, or we could even say the cleansing power of Christ. This woman is ceremonially unclean due to her illness, according to the Torah, God's law. She's suffering from a humiliating condition that is only growing worse. And so who or where could she possibly turn to for help? And the Lord sustains, or excuse me, ordains, sustains this woman <laughs> and, and ordains the opportunity for Jairus to, to witness this encounter and help him, help him to see the desperate condition that this woman was in. A woman who would have been turned away from the synagogue. And she's desperately reaching out to Jesus, which is virtually the same thing that Jairus is doing. And we talked about the contrast between these two. Jairus was a synagogue official. He had access to all the leaders of Israel. He was an elevated member of society. He was respected deeply and greatly in, in society. And so he had all the position of leverage. He had access to, to so many things, to the prayer and to the ministry of the synagogue, to, to those um, who, who would be able to help. And we saw the contrast to this woman who was deemed an outcast from the synagogue. She was treated like the plague. And she was all alone. And she was on the outside looking in. And she was desperate for help. And yet both see their need for Christ. And that is the lesson the Lord is teaching Jairus, and it's one that all the religious elite needed to see, and that is that every soul matters to God. Every soul of a child of God matters to him. And there is no righteousness apart from Christ. And what do you think that Jairus initially thought about this woman disrupting Jesus as they were on their way to see to see his daughter. What do, you, what do you think was going through his mind when that was taking place? Any guesses? I feel terrible that this woman has been suffering for so long. Well, I really need to have this woman stop by the synagogue later next week so that we can find a way to minister to her. That was the furthest thing from his mind. And that was a major problem within the religious establishment that was set up. That the scribes and the Pharisees, they lacked mercy. They lacked compassion. And so Jesus is pointing them to this reality. Not only was Christ going to show Jairus and the disciples that this woman's faith in him can heal and cleanse her, but that such a person is no less a priority to him. And our Lord's willingness to be touched, literally defiled by this woman, opens up a door for another vital lesson for Jairus as we now turn our attention fully to our second point that will help you and I grow in our faith. It is this trust completely in Christ because of his resurrecting power. 
And so now that we have a firm grasp on this passage, we know that what's right there at the middle, what we need to be focused on, this, this is going to impact our understanding of the remaining verses in 35 through 43. Let's begin with verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Consider for a moment what he must have thought when, when this news arrived. He and Jesus were rushing back to the house to try to save his daughter. They were probably just a few minutes away and they didn't make it in time. She died. If only they had come sooner. If only they were faster. If only they had not been delayed by this woman. And this is the last news that Jairus wanted to hear. After all, help was literally on the way. What pain this must have caused. This little girl was gone. And I can picture Jairus frantically in the beginning as his daughter was passing away and knowing about Jesus, going down to the Sea of Galilee and asking everyone, where is he? Where did he go? Where did he go? And they explained that he got on a boat and he, he departed. And I can picture him pacing up and down that shoreline, waiting and waiting. When is he going to come back? And what do we find out is immediately after he comes back that one of the first people that approaches him and goes up to see him is who? It's Jairus. And he explains the situation. You know, I had a, a circumstance in my life when I was 11 years old. My mom uh, lost her mom, my grandma on that side, who lived in Philadelphia and we were living in Illinois. And she took all my sisters and went back to the funeral. And my dad and my twin brother and I stayed at our house on the farm. My dad was a police officer, so he was working. And we helped take care of the farm while they went. And while they were on that journey, my dad got a call from uh, my grandma on his side, letting him know that they've found uh, a very aggressive cancer in my grandpa's body and that he had collapsed and falling. And they said that he literally might just have a few days to live. And my older brother, Paul, he lived in Clinton, Iowa. My older brother, Paul, who was a student at Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, called my dad. And he had said, he said, you need to come quick. You need to come quick. He's, Grandpa's dying. And my dad was hurrying and it was too late. He passed away. And my brother Paul was driving home from the hospital in Iowa to Illinois and stopped my dad in the middle of the road and had to give him, he had to give him the news. He's gone. He's gone. It makes me think of this story. And I cannot imagine, you know, and this is my, my grandfather who, who, who lived a, a relatively full life Consider the emotions of Jairus in this moment as he hears this news of his daughter who was merely 12 years old. But I have a question for you. Who was with Jairus when he heard the news? Who was with Jairus when he heard the news? And I'm telling you that is a principle of application that we can pull from this text 
And I don't know what trials. I, I don't know what tragedies that God has ordained for your life. I don't know what phone calls. I don't know what sudden heart attacks. I don't know what car accidents. I don't know what things are going to happen in your life. But I can tell you this with the fullest conviction that Jesus will be with you when you receive that news. And you must nail down that truth in your heart. We must nail it down. Because so often what can happen when we get overwhelmed with a circumstance, I said it before, that it eclipses God. And before we know it, we're, we're looking at the circumstances. We're looking at all the impossibilities. Well, as we continue in the verse, the words that Jairus' friends share seem to lack sympathy on the surface, but this is a good reminder that oftentimes words, written words especially, don't necessarily communicate the tone. I believe I believe that when they came up to share this news that his daughter was gone, they were very sympathetic. You know, we were reminded of that with emails and texts. Sometimes they just don't communicate the tone of care, right? And they can even appear cold. But it's like, no, the tone was just like, Jairus, she's gone. Your daughter's gone. And why trouble the teacher anymore? And that comment actually has some pretty uh, practical implications. Practical in the sense that she's gone, she's dead, so what more can be done? Practical in the sense that Jesus was a teacher, right? And uh, it was not permitted for uh, a, a teacher to touch a corpse or for uh, especially a, a rabbi or a teacher of the law Right? They were going to be a person who touched a corpse, according to Numbers 19, would be declared unclean for seven days. And so they understand the fact that Jesus is this teaching rabbi. They've seen him. He's teaching from place to place. He's teaching all day. If he were to, could have some pretty serious implications if all of a sudden he can't teach. And so it didn't make sense for them to have Jesus come anymore, that he should minimize his exposure. The, the, the impurification was dealt with so strongly by the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 19, and you can read about it there, but it basically says that if you did not honor anyone who just disregarded the laws of purification, they were to be cut off from the nation of Israel. That's how serious it was. And so Jairus, a synagogue official, who was a, who, he was definitely aware of this, is now in his mind, he's thinking based on purification principles alone, there's no way Jesus can help at this point. That's another lesson flowing out of Christ's encounter with the woman with the hemorrhage, where her impurity did not prevent Jesus from fulfilling the greater purpose of his ministry as he responded to her faith and trust in the Lord. And this leads Jesus to exhort Jairus. Look at verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And this word translated overhearing, it can also mean ignoring or not paying attention to. 
And it has three distinct meanings. One, to overhear something not intended for one, one's ears. Two, to pay no attention to or ignore. And three, to refuse to listen or to discount the truth of something. And all three meanings apply to Jesus right here in verse 36. And this opens up a very unique opportunity for Jesus to shepherd and exhort Jairus. Jesus' intention was to shift Jairus' focus off the circumstances, off that which was occurring to himself. And he needed to tell Jairus not to be overwhelmed by the problem at hand so that he could display the resurrecting power at his hand. What, exhorta what exhortation does Jesus give to Jairus in this verse? What exhortation would Jesus give to you if you were just overwhelmed by similarly desperate circumstances? He looks at him right in the eyes and he says what? He says, do not be afraid. Only believe. Believe. Don't fear, Jairus. Don't start looking at your circumstances, Jairus. Because if you do, your heart is going to be overwhelmed. If you do, anxieties are going to start surfacing. Fears are going to move in. They're going to overwhelm you, and they're going to grip your heart, Jairus. Don't get caught up looking at your circumstances. Don't get caught up looking at your circumstances. You hear me? Shift your eyes off your circumstances to the Savior. Actually, let me say it a little bit more um, graciously than that. Shift your eyes to see the Savior through your circumstances. Because it's not about, there are some things that, that are, are so desperate and so challenging, right? You're saying, oh, just focus on Jesus. Don't, don't give any regard to the circumstances. I think that lacks wisdom. I think that lacks or is insensitive. But we want to see the Savior through our circumstances. Why? Why? Because I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen when you see him and you reach out to him through your circumstances. What does he do? He grabs a hold. Does he not? He will grab a hold of you and he will literally pull them, pull you through your circumstances. And this principle found in this exhortation to Jairus, applies to our lives and our circumstances just as it did to his. Question, did Jairus know how the situation was going to end? No. And the Lord was growing his faith. And perhaps you find yourself, even in some circumstances right now, you have no idea how it's going to end. No idea. The Lord is growing your faith. The Lord is growing your faith. And so often we lose sight. And I trust God's word today is reminding us 
in great measure. Jesus receives the news. Jesus exhorts Jairus. Now Jesus selects his company. And just a quick word, you know, just going back to the application, and I think about that, you know, isn't it true of our hearts that sometimes we trust Jesus through certain things, but then there are just things that we, we opt not to trust him through? You know? We, 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 we trust Jesus with um, our unbelieving family and friends and, and for the gospel, right? To, to, to bring them to faith. We trust Jesus for all these things, but he wants us to trust him through everything. Everything. Our financial debt, our medical diagnosis, our noisy neighbors, our demanding boss. Your life is like my life. We, we, we all have the list, right? They're, they're, they're there. Those things are there. And you might be tempted in your own heart. Surely, Pastor John, you don't mean some of those things. You're right, I don't. I mean all of those things. I mean all of them. That we see the Savior through our circumstances. Well, next, Jesus selects his company. Notice verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And you know, our Lord never loses sight of discipling his handpicked men. The 12 apostles would one day be sent out and empowered, equipped with the miraculous gifts. Matthew chapter 10 describes this. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus specifically summons them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Thus, Jesus showed them what raising someone from the dead looked like. And here is an account in Mark that shares one such example. And later on in the book of Acts, you're going to see the apostle Peter raise uh, a woman by the name of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. Then in Acts chapter 20, you're going to see uh, the Apostle Paul who's going to raise, bring back to life a young man uh, by the name of Eutychus who fell asleep and fell out uh, uh, the window. And so it only makes sense that Jesus would show the apostles what this looks like. And Jesus is also helping Jairus, a devout Jew and synagogue official, and his disciples see that the New Testament gospel ministry is going to abolish those ceremonial laws, right? We mentioned this last week, that ceremonial laws and rituals for purification restricted Jews from touching lepers, from touching corpses, from people who had all kinds of different infections, which you can imagine just how numerous it was because they couldn't go down to the local CVS and get an antibiotic cream. It was, it was a lot of stuff going on. You doctors would have earned your money back in the day, that's for sure. A lot of stuff happening. And all this was going to change when the apostolic ministry began as they really were hands-on in their ministry, as they touched lepers, as they raised the dead, as they healed the infirmities of people. Jesus is faithfully discipling these men to be prepared for this. 
And he's also discipling them with his strong leadership. Look at how Jesus confronts the crying crowd in verses 38 through 40. And if, if you're really observant, you may have noticed that I even changed the word from last week's sermon bulletin because I, I put, my original word was Jesus comforts. But through my additional study and time spent in the, this passage, I realized that this is a confrontation that's taking place. It says they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not, de- is not, has not died but is asleep. If you read that clearly, unlike I just did, it actually sounds a little poetic in the English. Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. Okay? There we have it. Jesus busting the first rap right there. Okay? And what happens in verse 40? They begin laughing at him, just like you're doing at me right now. And they begin laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And on the surface, this appears that Jesus is lacking compassion, but there's something taking place in this setting that needs to be understood. And there was this workforce in first century Judaism, this massive workforce of people who worked as mourners, who would come to the homes of those who were dying and also stay even through, through the funerals. And they were professional mourners that, that showed up on the scene. And commentators agree that these are professional mourners who were already on the scene here with Jairus' daughter because her condition was so obvious to everyone that she was going to die that they've already showed up. They've already been invited to come. Her death is unmistakable. And this also helps us understand the mourner's response when Jesus shared that the girl has not died but is merely sleeping, they respond by laughing. Nobody would be laughing in that situation unless you're emotionally disconnected from what's taking place, which they were, which is the point. They were paid to weep. They were paid to wail. And Jesus clears them all out. Even he sees through the hypocrisy of that. And only those who are emotionally invested would be allowed to stay. No other family is mentioned here, so it might even be that this might be the only child that Jairus has. We don't, give, uh, we don't hear a record of anyone, any other children being mentioned, any other family. And so the stage is now set for Jesus to display his resurrecting power in verses 41 and 42. Look at verse 41. After Jesus has entered the room, it says, taking the child by the hand. Stop right there. Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher of the law, touching a corpse, taking it by the hand. That is incomprehensible for Jairus and for all those who are witnessing this. That is is mind-numbing. They they cannot believe what is taking place, that the Lord Jesus Christ has literally just reached out and taken her by the hand. Their their jaws are dropped. 
And again, Jesus is helping them see his mercy and his grace and his willingness to be defiled so that he could raise a life. Our verse continues, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated little girl, I say to you to get up. This is an endearing term, this little girl. It's a little lady. Little lady. He recognized that she was just, just going through childhood and was about to embark on, on becoming a woman. Little lady. I say to you, get up. And his resurrecting power is on full display. And what a picture of the gospel that this provides. That you and I were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We were without life. We were in a hopeless condition. And the Lord Jesus Christ did what? He allowed himself to be defiled when he literally reached out to us spiritually and we took him by the hand. And all of our trespasses, all of our sins, all of them, all of them imputed to him through the cross. And we see the reality spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that's a favorite of many that I share all the time. Helps us to see this reality so well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. On our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through him, in him, so that we could also experience the resurrection power through the gospel in our lives. And this physical miracle foreshadows the spiritual miracle that would take place in our lives. What effect would it have on Jairus and his wife and the watching disciples? Look at verse 42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Her ability to get up and walk is symbolic of her full restoration. In the Greek, all those who are, are witnessing this, they're, they're completely astonished. And can you imagine for a moment, and we, those of us who are parents, you just think about it. You know, Jairus, who had just seen his daughter, who was so violently ill, this close to death. And all of a sudden she is standing up and she's walking. It's powerful. It's powerful. Yet, it could be argued, and I think it should, that the greatest miracle that occurred that day wasn't Jairus' daughter coming back to life, but Jesus growing Jairus' faith through all the ordained circumstances of his life. And think about all the details that are interwoven into this account. And in a strange twist of irony, the hemorrhaging woman's example of faith served as a powerful testimony to Jairus. Listen to how James Edwards describes it. Jairus was a name, and Jairus has a name and a position. As a ruler of the synagogue, he has enough clout to summon Jesus to his house. The woman has none of these. Her name is not given or remembered. 
She has no position. Her only identification is her shame, a menstrual hemorrhage. She must approach Jesus from behind, whereas Jairus approaches Jesus face to face. Jesus, in other words, or Jairus, in other words, is a person of status and privilege. But in typical Markan irony, he does not hold an advantage regarding the one, the one thing that matters most. It is the woman who exemplifies faith, and in this respect, their roles are reversed. Despite her embarrassing circumstances, she pushes through both crowd and disciples to reach Jesus. Her gender, namelessness, uncleanness, and shame, none of these will stop her from reaching Jesus. To this undaunted woman comes the healing and liberating word, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. When Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe, how should Jairus understand the command to believe? What kind of faith should he have? The woman exemplifies and defines faith for Jairus. The answer is that he must have the kind of faith the woman has, which means to, distrust, means to trust Jesus despite everything to the contrary. That faith knows no limits, not even the raising of a dead child. Amen? Amen? And the irony of the lessons that Jairus learned through this involved a, a woman who previously, he being a synagogue official, it involves a woman that he would rather forget. And now after witnessing her encounter with Jesus and the testimony of her faith and her cleansing, it's a woman that he can never forget. How beautiful that this record of faith is recorded in Scripture for us to learn from. And it helps us to take a step back and to see the sovereign Lord orchestrating all these events, working in concert to show us the gospel. How would the story have read if the woman was healed, but Jairus' daughter was not resurrected? The woman's healing and restoration would have been tainted, and it would have been incomplete. But of course, Jesus would not have allowed that. His sovereignty and work in full display, Jairus' daughter had to be saved. So as we close our time, I want to leave you with those two questions that I asked at the beginning of the service. How big is your God? How strong is your God? And what sovereignly ordained circumstances might you face this week, this month, this year in 2016 that he would have you see him through so that he could guide you every single step of the way. Ironically, our passage closes as Jesus gives strict orders to silence in verse 43, which says, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And this is like complete opposite of what we saw with the Gerasene demoniac who was told to go to Decapolis, the region with 10 cities, and to proclaim and let everybody know about how God had shown mercy on him, right? Well, apparently Jesus was no longer going to be welcome in that region. And so now this healed demon-possessed man was going to be the missionary that was going to go and was going to reach those 10 cities. But now Jesus is back on the north 
west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's had what? Massive crowds following him, right? Has he not? Massive crowds. Question for you. If word got out that Jesus could now raise people from the dead, what kind of impediment do you think that that would have on his ministry? What kind of obstacle? If all of a sudden that the word, people were already coming to him for healing and, and other different types of miracles. Imagine if the word got out that Jesus could actually raise your loved ones from the dead. It would have completely gone against the very purposes for which he came. And physical lives being saved and restored, excuse me, as important as that might seem, it always fails when it's compared to the offer of salvation and eternal life which profits the soul now and in the life to come. Two miracles pointing to the healing and resurrecting power of Christ through the gospel so that your faith is grown to trust him more deeply. May we trust completely in Christ because of his healing power and may we trust completely in Christ because of his resurrecting power. And the closing words of our message come from J.C. Ryle and his concluding thought on this. Finally, let us see in this miracle a blessed pledge of what the Lord will do in the day of his second appearing. He will call his believing people from their graves. He will give them a better, more glorious, and more beautiful body than they had in the days of their pilgrimage. He will gather together his elect from the north and south and east and west to part no more and die no more. Believing parents shall once more see believing children. Believing husbands shall once more see believing wives. Let us beware of sorrowing like those who have no hope over friends who fall asleep in Christ. The youngest and loveliest believer can never die before the right time. Beautiful. Let us look forward. There is a glorious resurrection morning yet to come. Those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 Those words shall one day receive a complete fulfillment. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Hosea 13, 14. And he that raised the daughter of Jairus still lives. And when he gathers his flock around him at the last day, not one lamb shall be found missing. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, there are many lessons that your word provides for us. But none more special than those texts that shine the spotlight on the reality of the gospel and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal, cleanse, redeem, and yes, resurrect. It is powerful to dwell on such passages. And I pray, Father, for us as a church family. And I confess, even in my own heart, how circumstances sometimes get the best of me. When I walk in the flesh and I don't walk in the spirit, I don't see you as Savior. I don't see how big you are. I don't see how strong you are. All the truths that I know, even as a preacher of your word, I I lose sight of them. I can only imagine what it's like for those 
who may not have the privilege of studying your word full-time vocationally. The challenges are great, and I just pray for us as a church family corporately that you would allow us to always turn our eyes to you through anything that we face, bigger and small. You want our eyes to come to you to see that you can rescue us and that you can redeem any situation. And though we don't know how it's going to turn out, we do know that it's going to glorify you and it's going to be for our good. Help us to do what the Apostle Paul challenged the Corinthian believers to, to walk by faith and not by sight. And even though we cannot see tomorrow, you see it already. Even though we cannot see five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, you see it already. You know it already. Why would we not trust you? Help us now to go out and leave this place and to walk by faith. Help us to stand firm on the promises and the truths of what your word teaches us. May you bring yourself great glory as you put your power on display in our lives. We thank you for this series. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for growing our faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.